Hello and welcome to episode 326 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from separate locations. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time champion Storm. And I'm in Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. It's been a while since we haven't done this in person, but uh, had to this week because after managing to avoid COVID for a long period of time, I fell ill after Sunday's storm game and tested positive. So uh, isolating at home this week and uh, uh, a little bit different to be doing this one on Zoom once again. And uh, no, no beer this week, naturally, but uh I suppose we should get into the toasts anyway, as I toast with water here. Uh, starting with a, and you saw this in person earlier. I didn't Congre- even know. I didn't know that this was a thing I saw in person. There might have been multiple things you didn't know you saw in person. Uh, <laughs> what else was there? <laughs> congrats to Julio Rodriguez on becoming the first Mariners player with a 2020 season since Mike Cameron in 2002 with his game tying home run in the eighth inning Wednesday versus the Washington Nationals. He's the sixth player in franchise history with a 2020 season. And according to the Elias Sports Bureau, the second fastest player to get there in terms of career games played since 1900, trailing only Fernando Tatis Jr. Wow. Since 1900? I don't know. Were there like just a lot of people in the 2020 club? The, the Elias Sports Bureau is checking in on those. Okay. You know, you know what we have to do now. You named a number. I have to try to guess the other players in Mariners franchise history, right? It's, I I started to write this out as a trivia. It's not as fun as you would think because two of the players I, I'm not very familiar with. Okay, but but go ahead. Try to guess the other five. Okay, I'm going to guess Unieski Betancourt then. No. You're no. like, I, 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 you're not familiar with because it was a long time ago? It was a long time ago. Again, Julio Cruz. I did already say it's in the notes who the most recent person was. Wait, really? Yeah, because I decided to take out the trivia. Julio Cruz. But it happened in 2002. Uh, No, that that was my thought as well, but that that was not it. Well, A-Rod Griffey. Yes. Ichiro. No. Never did it. No, you know. Could have been a power hitter, but was it? your mvp this is whose number you're retiring this weekend anyway uh okay his, man. his number is actually getting retired is it oh he's going into the mariners hall of fame sorry <clears throat> of not being one of the six players in franchise history to hit 2020 wow why is this so hard i mean uh, when you hear the rest of this list you're gonna be like this maybe this isn't the best okay, measure okay. Of... all right just tell me bill bradley and rupert jones <laughs> were the other two <laughs> Okay, yeah. We would have been <laughs> guessing for a long time on <laughs> Yeah. Uh Phil Bradley did it, it looks like here in nineteen eighty-five. And Rupert Jones, I think it was like seventy-nine. It was way back in the day in for him. Eight- oh no, it couldn't have been in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> no, no. This is only was... Mariners nineteen hundred and on. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Correct. And Rupert Jones infected it in nineteen seventy-nine before either of us were born. <laughs> All right, next up, congrats to O.L. Rain on winning. I'm, I'm impressed to anybody out there who in their heads had Phil Bradley and Rupert Jones. Yes. 
Correct. Unless you saw the list earlier. Because I don't think they, they, yeah, they showed it on the broadcast. They, they didn't did. really have, at the ballpark, there was like no fanfare. I feel like there should have been a like, boom, 2020 for Julio. I agree with that. I feel like the, the Storm were really good about doing that sort of thing. They were, the, the Mariners were very fast to celebrate it by giving up the lead in the top oh, of the Oh, indeed they were. Like when Julio hit that home run, you're like, okay, now they got to win. And then they didn't. Uh, Congrats to O.L. Rain on winning the second annual Women's Cup, uh, beating host Racing Louisville 2-1 in Sunday's final, and Ziara King for being named MVP of that competition, that international competition. Uh, congrats to third Pelton brother Will Conroy, who was promoted to associate head coach for UW men's basketball last Wait, week. Wait, what is, what is the Women's Cup? Explain to me what that is. We'll, we'll talk about it a little more later. Okay, because you fucking take that San Diego wave. <laughs> they were not. They were not part of the competition. They were not part of the cup because they, they were scared. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was it. Uh, congrats to Lauren Jackson for signing with. I'm also impressed. Anybody who, who remembers that callback. <laughs> yes, I agree. Uh, congrats to Lauren Jackson for signing with the Southside Flyers for the upcoming 2022-23 WNBL <sighs> season. She continues to indicate she only wants to play in her native Australia. <laughs> I like the like things escalating and getting more and more extreme. <laughs> it's like Lauren Jackson signed an ironclad lifetime <laughs> contract <laughs> with a stipulation that she would have to pay back one trillion dollars if she played <laughs> for an American team. I mean, it's kind of amusing because I. I did assume like the whole idea of this comeback was to play in the World Cup this fall, as we talked about a few weeks ago when she made the Australian roster. But apparently it's just this comeback just keeps going. So it'll, it'll be interesting because the WNBL competition is much more serious than the league that she has been playing in. I believe the SEBL uh, during the summer, the Australian winter. Uh, so we'll get a better gauge on, on Lauren, her status for the 2023 storm season, I guess. Can't wait. <laughs> for the 20 the, the watch is on <laughs> like we've, especially... give, we've, we've given up the ghost for the 2022 season but never well, for, I, once sue is gone though it's kind of like that leaves a hole <laughs> <laughs> bring in the Stuart leaves bring in Lauren to replace her uh finally a farewell to shakeem griffin who announced his retirement from the nfl on the players tribune uh, Griffin was drafted by the Seahawks in the fifth round of the 2018 draft to join his twin brother Shaquille in Seattle, becoming an inspiration for his ability to play at the highest level without his left hand. Griffin played three seasons with the Seahawks and spent part of 2021 on the Miami Dolphins practice squad, but said he's now moving on to plan A for his life, which entails working in the community. All right. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, we'll always have that playoff game where Shaquem Griffin was the Seahawks number one pass rusher, right? Didn't he <laughs> made the play? Against that was against the Packers, right? That the Seahawks lost, and Shaquem made the like final sack, and then the Seahawks couldn't convert on the following drive. If I remember this correctly. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yes, which I, he only had one sack in the NFL regular season, as many as he had in the playoffs. I mean that that was a huge game, and obviously Shaquem was just freaking awesome. Like there, there's a few draft picks that you remember sort of later in the draft, and Shaquem being probably the most exciting one of those players when the Seahawks made that pick. I thought that was an awesome pick. Yeah, it was a great moment without question. All right, with that, it's time for NBA Seattle update. The sponsor Hello. by Faliachi Pizza. I've been waiting for this one for so long. And, and, some breaking news. Breaking news? I think so. Why? Oh, well, yeah, I, I guess that is true. Yes. Uh, so last Saturday, 
Truly a historic day for the crossover pro-am in Seattle. We talked about it earlier this year that we thought it was the biggest weekend in crossover history when they had Chet Holmgren and Paolo Bancaro, the top two picks of this year's draft, playing on a Saturday. And then DeJounte Murray playing with Trey Young and and John Collins on the Sunday. Literally, Paolo and, and Chet are just like complete afterthoughts. For sure. And then Jamal Crawford was like, well, what if we had DeJounte and we had Chet and we had Paolo and we had... Isaiah Thomas and Marjan Beauchamp and Tari Eason. And then on top of those guys, let's throw in LeBron James and Jason Tatum. That is wild. The Jason Tatum drop too. Like LeBron was one thing. You just you just throw in Tatum as well. Like, come on. So the rumors of this were circulating. I first heard about it at the uh, Storm game on Thursday night, the Storm playoff game, which was the day before this actually got announced uh, on Friday afternoon with First Jamal and then LeBron James Tweedy about it was for his first visit to Seattle in 15 years to play basketball, uh, which reminded me that he missed his last visit with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was injured with a sprained ankle. And uh, as people replied to my tweet, famously, Danielle Marshall, who was going to get traded to the Sonics about a month later at the deadline, tried to check in, did not have his jersey on. And LeBron like broke up laughing on the bench about this. That was the most memorable part of that game. Wow. Okay, I'm getting older. I remember none of that. But I mean, I yeah, that was it was a very long time ago. That was 14 years ago. His last actual game here was 15 years. ago. Was that ago. a good Cleveland team? Yeah. Okay. Uh, actually, it was the so the that that year was the year after they made the finals. His last okay. game here was the year they made the finals, and they had kind of a down regular season. But then they made that trade with the Sonics and uh, Delonte, got Delonte West and oh, hello. picked it up in the second half of the season and took the Celtics to seven in the second round in a I very competitive series. Well. Yes, I, I also hope so. So people began camping out at about four o'clock on Literally Friday the second afternoon. it was announced. Right? Not the second. It was a little bit after. Because the first I saw it is uh, the Washington Mystics were practicing because the uh, the Seattle Storm practice court is in Royal Broome Pavilion at SPU, which is where the crossover is at home. And uh, uh, my friend from the Washington Post, Kareem Copeland, tweeted a photo of the first person in line as he was leaving the Mystics practice around 4 p.m. And then by the end of the evening, I, like some of the reports I've heard were up to a thousand people that camped out overnight. How many people could fit in that gym? The yeah. listed capacity is twenty six fifty. Okay, and so that's and that's not all fans. Like that's not including you know f- friends and family. Because I, I think that's like fire code capacity, uh, people who are credentialed, things like that. So like it was already inevitable by very early Saturday morning that not everyone was going to be able to get in. And well, then yeah, I mean, it was inevitable when it was announced that not everyone was going to be able to get in. Well, that already not everyone who was there was going to be able to get in, I yeah. suppose I should say. And certainly some issues with the line where apparently everyone just kind of jammed in at some point instead of the single file line that had been there. So a lot of the people who camped out overnight didn't get in, which was a real bummer. So, but uh, I... I was at the in the building all day, went to storm practice in the morning, also the mystics practice and uh, watched the, the you know, first two sets of uh, of games of crossover action. Uh, saw some you know players transfers, Keon Brooks Jr., who's uh, coming in this season and then Noah Williams, who's transferring from Wazoo. Wow. Keon Brooks is 
bigger than I I think I realized in person. He was he was pretty impressive in that game. Nice. Doesn't shoot threes though, right? <laughs> uh, you know, he made at least one of them. I there think. we go. Looked okay. The best shooter on the team next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a start. It's something. But obviously, like you know, all the attention is they kept all the NBA players were in this final game. You have 10 players who either played in the NBA last season or are first round picks and are going to be in the league this year. Like basically you had a full five on five. What what was the energy like for those undercard games? So the gym was already packed at that point. The, I mean, they were at capacity, but uh, you know, some of, again, the VIPs hadn't, didn't show up until probably the middle of that, that third game. And then uh, there were a lot of people out, you know, at the concession stake. Those earlier games. They're scheduled every hour and a half. Okay. So it's like an hour 15, something like that. Okay. 20 That's minutes. Kind of a lot of basketball. Yes. It was a long day, especially when I explained how long I stayed after. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, look, people, they they definitely, you know, this, this was just an aperitif. People were, and it's interesting because we talked about all the names that were there, including Jason Tatum, who I was all NBA first team last year, <laughs> played uh-huh. at the NBA finals. No one cared about anyone but LeBron. Yeah. Like just all the attention was on LeBron. This was never more clear. So midway through the third game, uh, uh, my buddy Doug Eberhardt and I posted up on the baseline underneath one of the hoops using our, our credentials. And uh, like, people begin to mass on the the baselines in anticipation of LeBron's arrival after the game before that ended. And like everyone kind of crowded the entrance that he was going to come in at, which was odd because it's not the usual entrance that players take. It was the other side. And at one point, like I look up and like Chet Holmgren has just slipped into the dunk line Uh with, yeah, because it had been the, basically the non NBA players were also participating in this final game, which has got to be a fascinating experience. Yeah. they were all in line, and then at some point, Chet Holmgren jumped in, and just no one even noticed because everyone was waiting for LeBron to come. He finally comes out, massive roar, huge crowd of people follows him onto the court, uh, which becomes a problem because Jamal Crawford like has to his crew. No, no, like literally just trying people. to take photographs. Okay, I mean, some of these are media members, some of them are not. Some of them are like players from previous games. Some people, I think, just snuck down uh-huh. onto the court. And so Jamal Crawford has to take the microphone and like plead with people to like leave the court so that they could actually try to play the game. And there was a pretty extended delay. Jamal took the microphone, I think at least three times. There was like an extended huddle with LeBron at some point. And then a member of the Seattle Police Department came on to say that if they received another call from inside the building, that they were going to shut the event down. Oh, my God. And one of the things Jamal said was that someone had pulled a fire alarm. I, I read that. Yeah. Which I never heard a fire alarm. He so, said that's why there was water on the court, as if like sprinklers had gone off. Is that did you no, see that? no? That's not okay. that's not why. We'll we'll get into the condensation issue okay. at some point here, at the end. So, but it, I mean, at first there was a question of like, are we even going to be able to play this game at all, or is everyone just because one of the things he said about the fire alarm is that the originally the word was everyone was going to have to leave and re-enter the building. Uh-huh. That would have been like been oh yes. Yeah. If you thought there was chaos before, if they had tried to do that, it would have been chaos on top of chaos. So finally, everything settles down. We get the game started. And it quickly becomes evident, like, it is unprecedented level of hot in the gym. Mm -hmm. Because 
So there was a combination of factors. Because like Leah said, there wasn't necessarily more people in the building than that Chet and Palo game. And then I presume the DeJounte, you know, Trey, John Collins game the day after. And also it was hotter that weekend than it was last Saturday. But it was much more humid last mm-hmm. Saturday because of the fact that it was cloudy. It was like 70% humidity. I wouldn't look this up, which is enormous for Seattle in the summer. And then the other issue is, I guess because of the fire alarm, they weren't able, and because of the fact that there were still like thousands of people masked outside the doors, hoping to find their way in, they couldn't open the doors and get an airflow going into the gym. So it was extremely hot in there. You could see like everyone in the stands fanning themselves because it was just so hot. Uh, And it quickly became clear that this was all going to lead to a lot of puddle, like condensation on the court, especially anytime someone went down. And uh, Marjan Beauchamp was one of the people I spoke to afterwards. And he was like, yeah, anytime they wiped it up, it it didn't do anything to help. So we got through the first quarter without, well, I was going to say without incident, but that that's not true. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and it was as fun as expected. Jason Tatum hit a bunch of threes, was blowing kisses to the crowd. He and LeBron hooked up on an alley-oop. LeBron. They were on the, the same team. Yes. Okay. Uh, it was... Very fair, very fair. <laughs> Mostly the young guys were on one team and the vets were on the other team, generally speaking. <laughs> Trying to defend Jason Tatum and LeBron James. I mean, I think it was a close game for okay. a long period of time. I forget what the final score was. It was like 48-37, I think. Uh, this is the last play of the quarter. The, is the first quarter is running out. LeBron isolates at the top. Uh, it, you know, I think the kid played it at... Uh, I think... The, kid played at Chief South who was defending him was in at that point and he like hedges on the screen and LeBron hits him and he just <laughs> collapses backwards like this is a, he's a like, current Chief South player no I think he's currently playing college basketball okay he's like wow. six six eight and just like <laughs> LeBron went through him like he wasn't even there and dunked it was pretty it was pretty incredible I mean the other the other thing I should mention from this whole experience is like LeBron was so into it, was going around hyping up the crowd. And, you know, he was like clearly enjoying this experience. But by the middle part of the second quarter, it was like, yeah, I don't think there's any way there's going to be able to finish this game because of the condensation. Like my thought was, okay, maybe we can get it to halftime and call it. Could could you see it or you could just tell because the players were falling? Some players were slipping, but also you could just tell how much they were having to wipe things up constantly. Yeah. Was what made it clear. And then... Midway through the second quarter, Marjan Bochamp goes up for either a layup or a dunk and like slips on his way up. Unfortunately, it was fine, but that was like, that's it. That was the moment that yeah. uh, pretty instantly it was decided. Jamal came on the microphone again and thanked everybody for coming out and uh, you know said it was over. What so, was the reaction like when he said that? Did people boo? Did, did people kind of lose it then? Or are they just happy to have seen LeBron for a while? I think they were happy just to have seen LeBron for a while. I didn't sense a lot of anger from the people in the building. That's good. I think it was more the people outside the building who were pretty angry that they they waited, you know, many of them waited a long time and didn't get in. Um, so I stuck around because I wanted to, you know, I got some, a request to do a news story about this for ESPN. It became, you know, a pretty big story that it got canceled as abruptly as it did. And uh, so what happened is, LeBron and some of the other NBA players in there who were there 
decided to go conduct a workout in the storm's practice gym on the ground floor. And just like right after. Yeah. And worked out. We we didn't get a good enough run in and worked out for like two hours. Oh my God. Wait, were you down there for that? I wasn't allowed in. They wouldn't allow us in the gym. So I'm like waiting outside the door for two hours. And there was originally a group of probably like a dozen of us waiting and it kept dwindling. And one person after another left until I was the only one who was left when they actually (laughs) finished. They should just let you in at that point. You would think. (laughs) <laughs> I just wanted to go sit down. Actually, given your current state, they, it's probably a good thing they did well, not let you in. I was wearing a mask that, that entire time. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I finally... Giant, giant sign, no Kevin's allowed. Finally... Like, but, but Kevin Durant's in there. <laughs> finally talked to Jamal afterwards, and you know he said you know, that he was still glad that people that he was able to give people that experience who were in the gym, that it was once-in-a-lifetime experience. Oh, yeah. And that, you know, that it was an easy call in terms of player safety to shut things down. So the other, the thing he didn't know about, which I, we need to come back to is at the very start of this game, Chet Holmgren left after. Well, I, think I, I just he, want to say, I, 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 before we talk about Chet, I think all things considered, you know, the infrastructure isn't there to do an event like this, but Jamal did, and he managed to turn the crossover into the kind of event that Jason Tatum and LeBron James are coming and playing at. And that is an incredible feat for the city of Seattle. Obviously there's a little bit of it of like LeBron James wants to put Seattle on the map as a basketball city. I think there there's maybe there's a small element of it at, of LeBron James as a possible owner of an NBA team at some point that might be linked to the city of Seattle as well. Well, he's going to own the team in Vegas. That's what I'm saying though. But the timing could be that they're coming in at the same time. It is Correct. he. He is thinking about that sort of thing. But at the same time, like, wants is supportive of the city of Seattle. And I think that's huge what Jamal did. The amount of people online, maybe even people who weren't there complaining about it or talking about fixes for the future, it's like, that's not really what we're about here. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to tweet at Jamal Crawford, like, what happened or what you think should have happened. Jamal Crawford's aware of every single gym in the city of Seattle. I assure you that Jamal Crawford is aware of every single place that you can play basketball. You're not coming up with a new one. And so I, I think the it's just awesome that the event happened, whether it was going to be a full game or not. Obviously, there are circumstances that would have changed it. And if it was in a different building, it wouldn't have been as fun. Like, that's the reality is you kind of have to just, like, let things happen and not try to litigate them too much after. So um, speaking of litigating them too much after, uh, well, playing, in a, playing in a pro-am, the number two pick of the draft, well, also to your point, I mean, I think two things. Number one, that need to be known. Like, number one, you don't necessarily know that these players are going to participate until a few days in advance. And it kind of slipped my mind until I mentioned it in the the story I just wrote that LeBron side agreed to his extension on Wednesday. Like, he probably wasn't going to play in this until he had that extension done. <laughs> so the timing of that was a factor. So, like, yes, it would have been awesome I to move this. I get the feeling no matter what happened in the program, LeBron James is going to get a max extension for the league. Yes, fair. But I'm sure he wanted to get it taken care of. Uh, and he did play in the Drew League earlier this year. Uh, so the idea of, like, moving it to a different venue at that kind of last-minute notice is not realistic, I don't think. The other thing I would say here is, like, look, it, it, again, to the point I made earlier, and they've also they've done this with Kobe. They've done this with Kevin Durant. They've done this with Blake Griffin at the height of his fame. Like there's been a lot of full gyms. There's never been a line in the kind of camping overnight that we saw. I mean, that was just a one of one thing with LeBron. And number two, there's never been an issue with the court before. So I don't think that was something that Joel Crawford should have anticipated. Yeah, it was a unique situation. 
So the unfortunate aspect of this, as we've been alluding to, is that Chet Holmgren, after the first play of the game, left due to a, a foot injury. After the first play of the game? I believe it was the first play of the game when he was defending uh, at least the first defensive possession of the game. He was defending LeBron in transition. And, you know, I thought, you know, I saw him come to the bench and take off his shoe. And, you know, it seems like a thing where you sprain your ankle and you're just trying to kind of retape it. Uh, and retighten things. Uh, then he was he left the bench at some point, and unfortunately, we got news. Shams Trani of the Athletic reported on Wednesday that uh, it's feared that he has uh, foot ligament damage due to this injury, and uh, still TBD. How long he might potentially miss, depending on where this this injury is. What what is your general expectation for foot? Lig- is that a season ending injury? Is that a? As there's a wide variety of. Foot ligaments that and severity of those injuries. Defending LeBron in the play, like I'm, I'm trying to understand what's happening. Was it just a freak thing that happened, or was it a specific to Chet Holmgren thing that happened? Like LeBron ran over Chet Holmgren because of how skinny he is, or was it just like Chet just got injured and that shit? I mean, I was at the other end of the court, so I didn't see this super well. My assumption had been that his foot got stepped on, and apparently that isn't what happened. It was probably a different mechanism than that, but I I think it's a pretty random thing. The other, and I don't know that it has anything to do with the court situation, because that was the point at which the court was going to be in the best condition this entire game at the start of it. So, it had not yet the the heat in the building had not yet accumulated to the degree that it was going to by the second quarter. Like conditionings were worsening over time, so I don't think it necessarily should be connected to that. But obviously, if he does miss an extended period of time, there's going to be a conversation about players participating in these programs, which is unfortunate because if you look at this was still the cases of the weekend, Chet's most recent tweet was him uh, retweeting. It was either his it was like DeJounte Murray's tweet originally about. uh, Oh, yeah, it was DeJounte Murray quote retweeted by Dave King, who uh, is involved in the crossover, is also the coach coach at Rainier Beach. Uh, so his most recent tweet is about that. Uh, DeJounte Murray encouraging more NBA players to play in pro-aim games for kids and fans that can't afford to go to NBA games. And Chet quote tweeting that with, nah, this is real talk. So like, he's clearly very invested in this pro-aim experience. So a huge disappointment if he does miss an extended period of time because of it. All right. Anything I mean, else that, on the crossover? That, was that the most exciting basketball moment that happened in Seattle? Honestly, you have to stretch back into the Sonics days since 2005. Oh, men's basketball? Yes, men's basketball. Yes, because many, many exciting moments. We'll talk about some some over the weekend in a bit here. Uh, I mean, I think there were probably some UW men's basketball memories at some point that would supersede that. But LeBron is... There was is, the Dominic Green three against Arizona. That was a big one. I This is not LeBron James coming to Seattle, though. It was quite a moment. I was glad I could be there. As as much fanfare if Seattle had a basketball team, and like Jamal would still be doing the crossover, but like let's say LeBron came once a year or twice a year, even. I don't think it would be quite as much, but I also still think it would be pretty substantial because you know how many people can actually afford to go to those games to that point we were just talking about. Okay. Like, I think a lot of people did the math and were like, I mean, how much would it cost me to? go get courtside ticket tickets like this for an NBA game involving LeBron. It's well worth camping out on that note. It's time for a, your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. 
We got Mariner's Hot Takes coming at ya. Play by Carlos Santana. One of the most exciting parts about this particular Mariners season, and I guess really any great season, is seeing young players in their first first full year getting action, making thrilling plays in the outfield, doing stuff you've never seen them do before, the promise of what's to come. If they're already this good, then what's next? We really get to see seven more years of this guy? But I'll be honest. It's a double-edged sword because when all of a sudden, if a player like that ends up missing some time, the lineup just feels empty. You're looking around like, yeah, there's some good role players, but who's going to provide the energy, the electricity on the field, that spark of youth this team needs? And I got to say, these last few days have been pretty bland without, you know who I'm talking about. Sam Onofrio? Samuel Onofrio Haggerty after coming off four thrilling straight wins against the Angels and the A's. We're looking at the schedule like, hot damn, they were about to rip off another 14-game win streak. And then, boom, Haggerty is taken from us. The best hitter on the team goes down. A player who's been hitting so well this year that if he had the same OPS in 2001, they would have given him the motherfucking MVP award. I looked that up. It is true. They would have. And all of a sudden, they dropped three of four to some of the worst teams in baseball. We had it wrong. I'll admit it. We said the Mariners' timeline is Julio's timeline, but we've now seen the Mariners with one and not the other. And this team is Haggerty's team for years to come. Uh, love that 28 young 28 year old Sam Haggard <laughs> you know what the worst thing is about this take did you actually believe it that I believe it oh, that's the worst, always... the worst thing about every take it is isn't it <laughs> the, the, like it is you can look at there is a line in the sand yeah, the Mariners yeah. stopped hitting the second that Haggerty came out of the lineup the Mariners are 24 and 9 this season when Sam Haggerty starts the game wait what is the win percentage on that 24 and 9 are you asking whether it's better than 116 win pace? I'm asking whether it's better than the Dodgers this season. The Dodgers are at like 70%. The answer is it's better than 116 win pace. Like that's the best record okay. of baseball. Okay. So the Mariners with Sam Haggerty in the lineup are the best team in baseball history. You're telling me this. ESPN's Kevin Pelton, a statistically minded person, is willing to go out on a limb and say that the Mariners with Sam Haggerty are the best team in all of baseball history, 1929 Yankees aside. Well, regular season. I mean, we haven't seen Sam Haggerty do it in the playoffs yet. Like, no one's actually saying the 2001 Mariners are the greatest team of all time. They just have the best record. Uh, and and for the record, it would put you on an 118 win pace. Wow. There we go. So, so they're better go. than the Dodgers this year if Haggerty starts. Oh, this is easy. the kind of incredible way. Why are people not talking about that more? I I think people probably, you know. Understand don't. sample size? <laughs> <Yes>. Fuck that. <laughs> they absolutely do not understand sample size. Fair point. 
Fair point. Uh, I guess people are not willing to misunderstand sample size for this in particular. That is wild. They just can't get their heads around. It's like it's like how Scott Service continues hitting him eighth. No, I, I think it is an intentional Sam Haggerty hitting eighth, ninth. Okay. It's not like the, the Mariners don't think Sam Haggerty is a bad. He's not being benched right now. He's hurt. Right. And is still, by the way, playing as a defensive sub and pinch runner in all of these games. Which And as a pinch runner, steals second, steals third after that. Like, come on, people. Incredible. Ugh. This team is not the same. We really thought it was like, oh, it's like everything's coming together. And the second that the Mariners started their run, the second they started their win streak was right when Haggerty started playing. That is correct. It's kind of like, it, it's almost like disconcerting how good Sam, how how essential Sam Haggerty is <laughs> to this Mariners team. It is, it is tough to understand. No one else matters. The Julio Rodriguez win percentage clearly is not that good. No. Nah. A very nice solo home run he had earlier today. No, I didn't. Know. Wow. <laughs> I mean, Haggerty never got to got to bat after pitch running. Sadly, he had a had a nice catch in left field in the top. Of the I I was I mean I was I literally was looking at it just like okay Haggerty's up in like whatever nine hitters or something eight eight hitters and it was like okay if this game goes to extras we might get a chance to see if they'll let Haggerty hit. But man, dealing with a shoulder injury, by the way, which uh, the, there's also been so little like attention paid to the Sam Haggerty considering that if you look at uh as I understand uh war works wins above replacement level so if the rest of the team is average and if Sam Haggerty is 24 9 when he's played he's the most valuable player in baseball history right that's it's not quite how war works now it's it's kind of strange that more people aren't talking about this injury it's like like I'm, I'm saying this literally like it is it is strange that people have not highlighted that the Mariners got extraordinarily bad the second that Sam Haggerty came out of the lineup and lost to the fucking Nationals. Lost two games to the eights in a row. Couldn't hit. Yeah, it's all true. Uh, so the other thing that happened when you were at Wednesday's game that you're probably not aware of because you haven't, haven't really mentioned it. George Kirby threw strikes. On the first 24 pitches of the game. Like, really? Yeah. I gotta say, the broadcast was very on top of this. Well, it's kind of because he was getting hit pretty hard. He yes, giving this was up runners. When he gave up his only run that he allowed in this game was during the stretch. It was but like they were a, all in the zone. That's kind of wild. Uh, what is the record for most strikes consecutively in a baseball game? That's the after most 19, after that, 1900. <laughs> they only track this to 1988, but it's the wow. most consecutive strikes to start a pitcher's appearance since 1988. The previous Ever. record was 21. Again, he not crushed ever. it. He crushed it. He did. Wow. I mean, I wouldn't really say it was that great. Of, I guess he struck out nine. Like, yeah, he it was, was a good. The ball was getting a little bit too. Uh, there were, if you look at the whip, I do not think it was very good. There were a lot of base runners. There were a lot of base runners, but. That's actually kind of wild. Wow, I didn't realize I was there for history. There you go. Uh, so the other thing I would we need rather to be at that than Ichiro breaking the singles record. Oh, well, you're like, which game could you be at? Actually, it was really fucking hot today. <laughs> it was probably very cold when Ichiro broke the singles record. It was I, late September. Yes. It, yeah. Okay. So we want something right in between. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> in the Goldilocks zone of obscure Mariners records. <laughs> or you you want Mariners something that happens inside the kingdom. Yes, I you know I do. <laughs> when Griffey hit the the it was nine in a row, eight in a row. Eight in a row. When he hit the eighth one, was that in Seattle? It was, yes. Okay, there you go. That's it. You know it was indoors. I want to say that was Willie Banks. It was definitely against the twins. I want to say it was Willie Banks that he, that he allowed I that. I kind run. of remember that now that you say it. Was his name Willie Banks? Maybe not. We're going to have to look this up. I. It was, that's, that's the obscure Mariners record that I would have loved to have witnessed. I don't know if that one's an obscure. It's a hyper-specific. <laughs> yes. But it's not as obscure as three twenty-four. Eight home remember- runs in eight consecutive games is... Is definitely not obscure. Honestly, like people talk about being being at the Felix Perfect game, right? And that was on a day game, also. Uh, but yes, there have been tons of perfect games ever. There's only been one 24 straight strikes to begin ball game I ever mean, since 1988. Maybe there were a lot <laughs> in the in the 1800s. <laughs> uh, games with home run. I'm surprised this is not mentioned. Uh, let's see here. Oh, it was the only run for the Mariners in that game when he hit it for the eighth consecutive game. They lost five to one. It was Willie Banks in the seventh inning wow. in Ju- July 1993 in the Kingdom. All right, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty it, good drop. Thirty may, years later, twenty nine years later, you came it, up with the player. It may or may not have been super hot outside, but in the Kingdom, it was always seventy two degrees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So the other thing we need to talk I would, about. I, would, I was looking up at the roof and I was just like, can you just shut that fucker for a little bit? Oh, no. It'd still be warm. Uh, I don't think that was necessary. All right. Sunburned from a baseball game in August. What is this? Oh, no. We, we need to talk about something because you wow. complained about something a few weeks ago on this podcast. Is this going to be the, the intro play? Hello. I mean, I told you this is the one thing that the Mariners were lacking. It's funny that it comes in the middle of a losing streak right now, but this is definitely the new thing within baseball. Do you think this is just for Andres Munoz or just or the Mariners closers in general? Is this it was my inter- Andres Munoz was like, this is my music now? Munoz, I believe, was the one who came up with the Los Bomberos nickname. Okay. But, uh, I, I believe it will apply to all Mariners relievers that they voted on it to adopt it as a reliever is a bullpen wide nickname and therefore that that intro. So I guess they must only be doing it when there's a mid inning pitching change because you didn't see this at the game today, right? No, they, they, they did not play this for uh, uh, Matt Brash when he came in. <laughs> and Munoz came in with two outs in the seventh to leave Robbie Ray in that game. And that's when they played it. Yeah. And I haven't seen any videos of it happening with the subsequent two pitching changes when Swanson and Seawald came in. So are you I sure think it's not just a, Munoz? I, then. It could be, but I think it's a mid inning thing. All respect to honor Munoz. If he's just like, Hey fuckers, this is what we're doing. <laughs> it's, what it's, still, doing. it's like a little bit rudimentary that the Mariner, the Mariners doing it. It's like, they kind of have it. They haven't quite figured it out. Right. Edwin Diaz has it figured out. The Mariners are just like they're in their neophyte stages. At least they're trying the fanfare. Yeah, no, I'll I'll accept it. Yeah. So, there you go. We we do that. We get to know Frio back in the lineup. Anything you can do to make baseball slightly more fun. I don't know if the light show would have worked in the middle of the day. (laughs) That's another reason they should have closed the roof. (laughs) I'll do anything to bring the kingdom back. You could have played that fucking light show any time of day in the kingdom, any weather, any time of day. 
light show would work perfectly. <laughs> it was always dark in there, <laughs> like a casino. All right. Uh, no, I'm, think, I'm think, excited to see more of this. Do you think the casino has ever been compared to a casino before? <laughs> oh, Cold no. and joyless. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, casinos. Let's talk about the Sounders, who were oh. hard done by with a rare draw just their third of the season on Friday night. In Los Angeles, they fell behind 2-0 in the first half, surrendering a deserved early goal to Chicharito, and then a second to Victor Vasquez on what the our friends, the Men and Blazers, would describe as a chasse, a mishit pass that unexpectedly found its way into the goal. Sounders had plenty of dangerous chances in the first half and converted those into three goals in a 20-minute span from Kellen Rowe, Rel Ruiz Diaz, and finally Jordan Morris putting home a rebound to take the lead in the 73rd minute. But near the end of the 90. Javier Ariaga was called for a ticky-tack handball via VAR, and Dejan Jovalich, Jovalich converted from the spot for the two teams to share points. Sounders dominated this one in terms of shot-based expected goals 2.5 to 1.3. Sounders played that one without Christian Roldan, who subsequently underwent surgery to repair a groin injury on Tuesday and is expected to miss four to six weeks. That timeline puts him back right around the MLS regular season, end of the MLS regular season, and whether the Sounders play past that remains in question. Uh, the Sounders still one point back of the Galaxy in the Vancouver Whitecaps for the last West playoff spot. They're eighth in terms of points per match. Uh, with Nashville SC actually is the closest ahead of them in that measure. Uh, that makes this Friday's match important as the Sounders face the Timbers, who are tied with them in the standings in one more match uh, with 33 points. And Sounders hoping to continue a Barzar trend that has seen the road team in the Portland-Seattle Derby win 10 of the last 13 MLS regular season matches between these two clubs. All right, O.L. Reign. Uh, I, I did not realize that they were playing in the women's cup last weekend. I, I referred to it as a buy because they weren't playing in NWSL, but, uh, played a pair of matches in Louisville, came back from a deficit, uh, one, nothing halftime deficits in both of these on Wednesday, they played club America in the semifinal, getting a pair of goals with a four minute span from Ziara King, the eventual MVP and Olivia Vanderjagt to equalize and then go ahead midway through the second half. Then they did the same thing Sunday against hosts racing Louisville with King's corner headed home by Olivia Athens to equalize and Jordan Heidema that in her first rain goal is the winner in the 66th minute. Hello. So this is basically the MLS open cup, something like that. No, it's, it's basically the equivalent of there's, you know, like the international champions cup and stuff like that, that are played is competitions in the U S involving foreign teams during their preseasons and MLS teams don't participate that because uh, MLS teams don't typically participate in those, but in these ones, NWSL teams are playing with some of these international clubs in competitions. I mean, if there's a tournament, you might as well win it. If if there's a cup to be drank out of, you might as well get it. Yeah. We don't know what the women's cup actually entails. It's literally called the women's cup. If there's not a cup, how you can't legally call it that. People being yet, and yet. No. Do they? They do. Ugh. Uh, Rain back to NWSL play this weekend, visiting Orlando. The Pride are eighth in the standings, just three points back of the Rain, but have a minus 12 goal differential as compared to the Rain's plus five goal differential. 
How are the San Diego Wave doing? <laughs> uh, I, I let's see, where are they in the NWSL standings? They are second in the NWSL standings. Wow. We're so. coming for you, Wave. We are coming for you. <laughs> Gonna crest that wave. All right, Seattle Storm advanced to the WNBA semifinals with a sweep over the Washington Mystics last weekend. Pulled out an 86-83 win on Thursday in Game 1, uh, a game Washington led much of the uh, fourth quarter. Joel Lloyd, who did not have a field goal through the first 35 minutes of the game, then came in and scored 12 consecutive storm points, including a couple of baskets to get the team within one, and then finally the go-ahead jumper inside the final minute. Uh, Storm got some big stops. Mystics had a turnover, and then it was a a, a three point. It would, Mystics had a turnover when they were down one, and then it was a three point game. Had a chance to tie. Elena Deladon missed a three pointer that would have tied it, uh, giving the Storm the game one win. Tuesday's game two, again very close in the first half, but the Storm finally pulled away and got some separation in the second half. Won at ninety seven eighty four. Uh, a near triple double from Brianna Stewart in this one felt two assists shy of what would be would have been her first career triple double. Sue Bird did have a double double in this one, season highs in both points with eighteen and assists wow. with ten in the playoffs. Also that's, saw my that's yeah. a ball game. It is. Also saw my former ESPN colleague Micah Adams mentioned that it was her best game score ever in a playoff game at age forty one. Really? Yeah, during her final season. Still got it, Sam. You sure you want to retire? Uh, it's like Albert Pujol status. I That's pretty impressive. Yes, yes, very much so. So the Storm advanced to take on the top-seeded Las Vegas Aces in the semifinal round. Uh, the Aces took this regular season series 3-1. Now, can, it, wait, can I just explain? You keep saying semifinals. There are people who are confused, notably me. <laughs> I did have a conversation with somebody else and they were like, it's the semifinals. That's basically the conference finals. That's what we're talking about here. It's yes. It doesn't have to be teams in the same conference because the WNBA playoffs no longer use conferences, but the next round is the finals. Yes. Okay. So they're playing in the Western conference finals. Got it. it in this case is they are two Western conference teams and there are two Eastern conference teams playing in the other semifinal matchup, Chicago and Connecticut. It is, in fact, a de facto Western and Eastern Conference Finals. Okay, thank you. But we're still calling, we're still calling it the semifinal round officially. Uh, so the Aces, I was saying, took the regular season series 3-1 and could a pair of wins in the final week of the regular season. They spoiled the Sue Bird's final regular season home game and that celebration in front of a sellout crowd. Storm's lone head-to-head win came in Tina Charles's debut back in June, but all four of those games were decided by no more than 11 points. Uh, really, it was kind of Las Vegas pulling away very late in those games, and you know, a couple plays here or there, uh, certainly the outcome could be different. So in anticipated series, uh, these teams have only faced each other once in the playoffs. That was the 2020 WNBA Finals when the Storm got the sweep. Uh, the Aces pretty shorthanded at that point. Uh, they did not have Kelsey Plum that season. That was when she had her Achilles tear. Uh, Dear Hamby missed those finals, and the, that absence was really felt. Hamby's coming back from a bone bruise in her knee that sidelined her the first round of the playoffs. Is the Aces pretty easily dismissed the shorthanded Phoenix Mercury in a two-game sweep. 
unclear whether she'll be available for the start of this series. That's definitely pretty important because Las Vegas is not a very deep team. They really rely heavily on uh, a group of basically seven players. And Becky Hammond, in her first year as the Aces head coach, doesn't like to go much beyond that. But Hammond has revolutionized this team offensively uh, in that 2020 meeting. And, and, you know, even last year under Bill Lambeer, it was all about, you know, everything playing through the post with Asia Wilson in this <laughs> campaign. Yeah, no surprise. Uh, and taking very few three pointers this year, they're taking a ton of threes. Wow. And lo and behold, have been, you know, one of the, the best offense in the league much of the year. So, I mean, they were still a very good team. They had the best record in the, uh, either, I think they had the second best record in the regular season last year and got upset in the semifinal round by the Phoenix Mercury. So, the Aces looking for their first championship in franchise history. Uh, it should be, I think, a really fun matchup given there's you've got the Asia Wilson, Brianna Stewart rivalry. You know, they're, they're friendly, but, uh, you know, rivals as MVP, the top two finishers in MVP. They were 1 2 in 2020, are almost certainly going to be 1 2 again this year, uh, possibly in that same order with Asia Wilson edging out Brianna Stewart. You've got the Kelsey Plum ties to Seattle and to Sue Bird. So there's a lot of fun connections between these two teams. I think it's going to make for a great series. Oh, it's an awesome matchup. It's the only way it could go down for Sue is is really meeting a team like Vegas, who I feel like are kind of growing into the storm's biggest rival in the WNBA. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, obviously, if the storm were into the series, win the series, it's not like the finals would be anticlimactic, but in some ways, Las Vegas would be the biggest foe you would, you would face. If you are doing this, you do. Uh, are you are you picking the games for ESPN WNBA games, the series? I'm sure we'll have picks at some point. Yeah. What what it? This is a three game series, correct? Best of five. Best of five. Okay. What what is what is your prediction in this series? I'd probably go aces in five. Okay. And, and they do it two two one. Yeah. So Storm guaranteed at least one more home game for Sue Bird, game three, which will be coming up on Sunday, September 4th. Uh, Then, you know, would need to win one of the first three to assure a fourth, you know, a a second home game on Tuesday, September 6th. Uh, It'll be interesting to see, I think, what the crowds are like for these ones. That's Labor Day weekend that they're playing the opener. Uh, You know, as I alluded to last week on the pod, the crowds for the playoff games against Washington were not as good as the turnout we saw in the last weekend of the regular season. So hopefully there's a little, a little more time. bit more time to sell tickets to that game three though. Right. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a more exciting matchup. I think that maybe was a factor in, you know, the full sellout for the last regular season game is people wanting to see Las Vegas and see Kelsey Plum too. And so you said all the higher seeds moved on. So the way that they structured the first round tournaments with the two home deciding game on the road ended up not hurting anybody no and it was interesting because it was actually we one of the teams was the second seed we saw the second and third seeds and they were really heavily favored get extended to three games the storm in the closest matchup managed to get the sweep and avoid having to travel across country for the deciding game three in washington but uh New York stole game one in Chicago and Connecticut Dallas won game two in Connecticut. And both of those teams got to host them the deciding game three, but ultimately they weren't particularly close. Either of those two final games, the higher seed won pretty easily on the road. 
Okay. Which is no surprise. I mean, one of the things I looked up, if if either of those teams had won, it would have been the second biggest upset in WNBA playoff history in terms of point differential. So, so wow. okay. the Storm have never lost this deep into the playoffs. They've won the title all four times. They've reached either the semifinals or the conference finals. But this is the first time in any of those years that they will not have had home court advantage for any series. And with all top four seeds advancing, Storm can't have home court in a series the rest of the way. So I guess I did, didn't say the uh, that series gets underway. Game one will be Sunday in Las Vegas, a full week off for the Storm in between the end of the last round and the start of the next one. All right, UW football, we have a starting quarterback. As expected, Kaylin DeBoer announced Tuesday that Michael Penix Jr. will start at quarterback in the season opener against Kent State. DeBoer said Dylan Morris is currently second on the depth chart, but then Sam Heward is right there and most improved from spring practice. Yeah, I, I would say this is chalk for what I expected. Yes. Somebody would have had to have really broken out between Sam Heward and Dylan Morris in those practices. And, and it's partially because of uh, Michael Penix's experience and then also mostly his experience with Kalen DeBoer in the system. And I think Kalen DeBoer mentioned that. And I, I all the quotes, obviously everybody's going to be positive about everything coming out of camp, but like I'm pretty hyped on Michael Penix Jr. right now. And also knowing that if, you know, Michael Penix Jr. has been hurt in the past, like if an injury were to happen, that there are two potentially very solid quarterbacks sitting behind him who are learning the system. And I think the timing works out pretty nicely. Like, I don't, I don't think Dylan Morris is going to transfer before this year. I think Dylan Morris is going to play this year out and see what happens. And then, if for whatever reason Sam Heward ends up not playing this year, not for whatever reason, probably a good. It would be a good thing if Sam Heward didn't play this year. Uh, we're not looking at Sam Heward transferring. I don't think. You know, it really. I really get the feeling that the timing works out that Sam Heward can sit for a year. And then learn the Kalen DeBoer system. If things go as well as we think it can, you could have three years as a starter. And by the time UW's in the Big Ten, they could be going into Sam Hewitt's senior season. You know, it, I thought you didn't was... even respond to that at all. <laughs> <Nothing>. <laughs> you took that as chalk. I was looking something up. <laughs> You're like, mm. <laughs> it was like when you agreed that Sam Haggerty is the most impactful <laughs> player in baseball history. <laughs> Oh, well, that, like, yeah, well that's, that's, that's just a fact. Yeah, I mean, the stats say what they say. Numbers, there's never glitches in the computer. Numbers never lie. Uh, <laughs> I think something that works in the Huskies' favor, and I, Christian Cable pointed this out on The Athletic, is like back in the day, you had to transfer ahead of the season or potentially risk missing you know, two seasons effectively. Like you'd miss the season you started with one school and then have to sit out the first year at your new school. Now, because of the immediate transfer eligibility, Dylan Morris or Sam Heward, even if they want to transfer, it makes more sense for them to just play this season out and then transfer after that. Yeah. So that that works in their favor. I mean, I think it's it's an unusual situation because like Morris is the incumbent starter. He and Sam Heward were both here. And yet Michael Penix Jr. had the continuity advantage because of his time played for Kayla DeBoer. That's what made this such an interesting situation, but also made it it's such an expected one. Yeah. I'm excited though. Uh I I I am hundred percent on board with Kaylin DeBoer at this point, right now, with the combination of bringing in a quarterback, right? System 
that we've seen work obviously at the smaller level, but like a quarterback who's coming in, who knows what he's doing. We've seen him be a quarterback whisper with Jay Kane or honestly with Michael Penix Jr. beforehand. Yeah. And I'm I I'm pretty excited for this football season to kick off in a couple of weeks. Obviously, you know, we're not gonna really know anything until September 17th. Or we're not gonna know anything positive until September 17th. <laughs> the only thing we could know is negative. Right. Yeah, we we learned some which, things which happened to us last game. year. Oh boy, a a random Kevin DeBoer related note. By the way, I, I don't know if you saw this that the Seahawks signed Ronnie Rivers on Thursday on Wednesday, who played running back for DeBoer at Fresno State last really? year. Really? Yeah. So he'll be uh, adding some depth for the Seahawks uh, final preseason game. He'll probably be the best running back on the roster. Oh, <laughs> they'll probably. Oh, all... this is undra- undrafted rookie Ronnie Rivers, who I've never heard of before this moment. Yes. I, I would say, knowing the information that I know about this, which is that Ronnie Rivers is an undrafted rookie free agent, he is j- just as likely to lead the team in rushing as Ken Walker is this year. I would say that is very unlikely, given the information <laughs> no, no, I know, no. which is that uh, <laughs> rushing attempts are correlated yes, with draft yes, positions, <laughs> even if rushing success is not, as we dis- discussed a few months ago on this pod. All right, let's talk about the Seahawks. So I told you yesterday that I was going to watch the Seahawks preseason game against the Bears, which I had missed because it was opposite game one of the Storm playoff series uh, to, you know, see see what I could glean from that game. And you uh, did not feel like there was a lot lot to be taken from it after well, having attended wh- in person. What did you, did you do this? I did. Yeah, I watched the and, entire thing. And tell me, what did you glean by reviewing this game? I gleaned a lot of optimism from the, uh, from... The broadcast crew, Lewis Riddick in particular, oh. about the Seahawks roster. Yeah, that was that was the thing I glimpsed. Uh Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's tough to say how good Geno Smith was because everything around him was so bad. That's, I think, the best, the most positive thing I could say about this one. No one, no one appeared to suffer serious injuries. Now that Damian Lewis. You know, his his injury does not appear as serious as it looked on the field uh, when he was carted off. So that's a positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any takes from the, attending the game? I feel like I have to go all positive on the Seahawks. Like, I I've been so negative about everything where I'm just like, yeah, you know, they really. You know, their starters weren't out there. Like, they just didn't care about this game. You know, the Bears Bears were playing basically all their starters. <laughs> like, you know, without DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, like, you just don't really know what the Seahawks are going to be. We haven't seen the Seahawks with Geno Smith as the quarterback and DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett on the roster before, right? You know? <laughs> Not with Noah Fan. Uh, boy, there were a lot of Charles Cross penalties. I mean, I knew that from from reading Twitter during the game. I, I'm just gonna. We've had this dialogue all off season, right? And and I understand it's a long term thing, but it's basically like Seahawks won the off season, right? They did everything right. They've built back up their depth. Their second unit is so much better, right? They're they're getting going, and it's like you can either have one or the other. Seahawks, Pete Carroll. You can't both have good starters who just weren't playing. Then you would win, or you have a built built up depth on your roster it's kind of all bad right like the starters who aren't playing we already saw what they were last year 
But the Bears also weren't playing their starters in this game. It's not like the Bears were trying as hard as they could and the Seahawks weren't. Yes. The Seahawks' depth that we heard that all offseason they, they've built up got fucking torched by the very bad Chicago Bears second unit. So it's kind of like, I, I don't understand how you could approach this with basically any optimism. Uh, that's kind of it. Like, I, I don't know how you could come out of this game with any optimism for the season. What you could do is you can note that these players are young, which is fine, but there's nothing that they did during this game that you would say to yourself, both these players are young and they have the potential to be very good. I mean, I think some of the players still have this. I think Charles Cross still has the potential no, to be very good. No, and obviously they do. The I'm just saying that we have such a small sample size at this point. Yeah. I, I still think there there is... There is a very, I don't want to say poisonous, a misguided perspective that because the Seahawks tore it down, Pete Carroll and John Schneider, when they got here, they tore everything down and started over with the young roster. And many of those players ended up being Pro Bowl Hall of Fame caliber players, that they'll be able to do that again. And it would be the biggest fucking coup in professional football history if they were able to all of a sudden draft a bunch of Hall of Fame caliber players a second time just by being bad. People are looking at it and they're saying, well, the common thread between these two things is they're restarting. But I can also tell you many teams have restarted before and ended up with no good players. Just restarting as a franchise doesn't mean that you end up ask the fucking Jets how many times they've started over as a franchise. The Lions, how many times they've started Bears. over as a franchise. The Bears, like the Bears still don't seem like they're in necessarily a better situation than they were in 10 years ago or whatever. That is the, that is the dangerous place to be in. And the real dangerous place to do it is under a perspective of these two dudes did it in the past, therefore they can do it again. Maybe they can. I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be optimistic in the places that players show. Once the games start, I'm going to be excited and cheering for the Seahawks. But at this point, I hate the preseason anyway. And these games are fucking terrible. And my catalytic converter was stolen. I got no positives from this weekend. No positives, many notes. Uh, I do think Tyreek Woolen was, by the way, the one player who I think was pretty solid in this game, better than against Pittsburgh. And the fact that he played the entire first half and that Kobe Bryant is now playing in nickel as a backup nickel behind Justin Coleman, like it's made it very clear that Woolen has separated himself from Kobe Bryant in that particular competition and has a chance to legit play week one, depending on what happens with Trey Brown and you know some of the other corners who are injured right now. I'm willing to be excited about Tariq Wollin. Thank you for giving me that. Yeah, no, I, I I get it. I understand why people are. But also, you can have a steal of a, of a cornerback in the draft, and it doesn't necessarily impact winning games all that much. Yeah. I mean, we saw it. Like, what, what would you put the percentage chances of Tariq Wollin being as good as Shaquille Griffin in his last year in Seattle? Like being as good this year as Shaquille Griffin in his last year in Seattle? At, at any point in his career with the Seahawks. Definitely I'd say, not this year. I, there's a yeah. slim chance yeah, right maybe, now. But like, right, right. Uh, 40%? Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. Even then, having one Shaquille Griffin is like the Seahawks clearly weren't willing to pay him. And he doesn't make that big of an impact on winning games. Having a player like that. They have to be part of an entire system of players. The, th the thing that I will be positive about 
because I'm fucking hyped to watch me some Drew Locke. Well, we're going to get that chance. Pete Carroll Hello. said Wednesday that Geno Smith will start the preseason finale at Dallas on Friday, but Locke will play the bulk of the game after missing his anticipated start last Thursday due to his positive test for COVID-19. Uh, we'll see if Drew Locke gets more help than Gino did in this one. Gino was also a starting quarterback playing against second team players. Like, I don't, I think you were overestimating how good Gino Smith played in this game. I think Bears he played second fine. Team players. I, I think it was just very difficult to evaluate him because everyone else was so bad. So. If, uh, okay, let's say this third game. Let's say that Gino is basically same as Gino's been all preseason. But he plays a totally fine preseason game. We know we know for a fact that Geno Smith is a backup NFL quarterback. We know that Pete Carroll knows that. Everybody knows that. Pete Carroll does not know that. I think Pete Carroll somewhere deep down knows that Geno Smith is a backup NFL quarterback. If Drew Locke plays significantly better than Geno against the Dallas Cowboys. What are the chances Drew Locke is starting week one against the Denver Broncos? I still think he's got an uphill battle. It's not just going to all be on this game. One of the things that Pete Carroll said earlier in the week was that, you know, it sounded like originally his timetable was to name a starter after the end of the preseason, but with Locke missing this time due to COVID, that that was going to push things back. And you do have, and this is, this is new to the NFL is of 2021, this extended period between the end of the preseason now and the start of the regular season, more than two weeks and an extra day even for the Seahawks because they're playing on Monday night to start the season. It's a long time. It's a very long time between games. So uh, some of the practice time in between that will help determine the decision on the starting quarterback as well. But I still think like all of the things equal, they're going to go with Geno because of his experience in the system. He's the Michael Penix of this situation. I'll, I'll accept it. I, I think the other piece that was a little bit, I, I don't know why. I, I'm not going to say I was surprised by it, but I did see people on Twitter complaining about it, was you just watched that game, and it just, that was the Seahawks. You looked at it, and you're just like, yeah, this is the exact same team that we've been watching for the last fucking decade, and that we've seen kind of been deteriorating over the last four years. And it it just fundamentally does not look like the offense or the defense are going to look any different at all and it comes back to we heard kj wright say it on the podcast with mike sean and chris where it's like this is pete carroll's team and it's pete carroll's system and whomever the coordinators are don't fucking matter i'm this willing always going to be pete carroll's system i'm willing to be look i mean it's pete carroll's system but pete carroll did also fire his like close friend defensive coordinator and bring in people from outside the Pete Carroll tree to help run the defense this year. I think the defense they is did, going to look somewhat they different. They did promote the person from the Pete Carroll tree yeah. to defensive coordinator. Let's not, let us, just bringing in people, what is, what is, oh my God. Sean Desai. Yeah, Sean Desai. What is his official role? Secondary coordinator? Ad, defensive advisor? I believe it's pass game coordinator. Pass, pass game. They could have hired Sean Desai as the defensive coordinator, and they notably did not. That is a pretty rosy view of what happened this offseason. I don't think that Sean Desai's role would be noticeably different if he were defensive coordinator. 
That's yeah, because it doesn't matter. That's what I'm saying to you. It wouldn't be noticeably different because Pete Carroll does things one way, even if it changes for one week, even if it changes for one half. Pete Carroll does things one way, and the team's going to look the way it's going to look under Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll also has talked about doing things very differently on defense. I think that they're saving that for the regular season. They are saving that. I don't know that I think the that that's... second that they get roasted when they're blitzing, and then all of a sudden it's going to be back to the same shit. They did blitz a fair bit early in this game, I would say. So that that I felt was was noticeable. Uh, what what about Achena Owoso? Because I thought he Uwosu. was quite good. Yeah, I think he was one of the better performers. We he played a fair bit in this one. Him and Daryl Taylor both is you know a couple of the the starters who were most involved in this one. We, we still haven't seen the Seahawks starting safeties at all during the preseason. It's basically just been the edge rushers and the defensive linemen, and then Cody Barton. Uh, we also haven't seen Jordan Brooks at all. And the inside linebacker in depth in particular seems pretty troublesome. That's a spot where I wouldn't be surprised to see the Seahawks pick someone up. I think they're probably going to pick up a lot of players after waivers clear. But A lot of players? Yes. You think there's going to be a big churn on the roster? I do. Okay. I think that'll be the effect of the second units and third units struggling as much as they have in the preseason. Uh, I, just, I I I I will just say I'm mostly just excited for the games to actually start though because it you just you can't really glean that much all things considered from what's going on here it's sort of it's just such a hodgepodge of everybody like there hasn't been anybody who's really stood out but I I just don't even buy you know people are so excited about Rodrigo on Hard Knocks you know what I mean and I'm not gonna buy any player that especially a player who is not drafted very high. And any hype stri- if Aiden Hutchinson is very exciting during preseason, that would matter a lot more than a fifth round draft pick being very exciting during preseason. Eh, to me. I mean, I think if it's someone like Malcolm Rodriguez is nicknamed Rodrigo for reasons, uh, by Aaron Glenn, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. But he was like a very productive player at Oklahoma State who was dropped to the fifth round because he's undersized. And in scenarios like that, if it works during training camp in the preseason, I'm going to assume it was the scouts were fucking stupid and not that, and that the draft pick doesn't actually, where you were drafted doesn't matter yeah, at all. Just take Chet number two. I mean, like physically, he's unlike any player who's ever played in NBA history and been successful, but like he's the second pick in the draft. I mean, you just, I don't want to talk about it right now. Uh, the that, last... That's actually the scouts. The scouts were, it, he didn't fall. So I don't no, know. no, he did not. <laughs> the last thing we need to talk. The about... argument doesn't exactly make sense. No, it does not. But... He was out of fifth round pick decidedly. <laughs> the last thing we need to talk about is it finally came out. The Bill Barnwell list of teams most likely to improve in 2022, as we've been discussing on this podcast for. At least eight months, maybe nine months. And here's what he had to say about our friends, the Seattle Seahawks. Here's where we throw in a sad rejoinder. If there's <laughs> any team that would have qualified for this list on paper at the end of the 2021 regular season, it would have been the Seattle Seahawks. The difference between the 2020 and 2021 Seahawks was mostly Wilson getting hurt and their performance in close games. In 2020, they outscored their opponents by 5.5 points per game and went 7-3 in games decided by 7 points or fewer. 
In 2021, they outscored their opponents by 1.7 points per game and went 2-5 in five in games decided by 7 points or fewer. They finished 2.2 wins before their Pythagorean expectation. Even with the Wilson injury, the Seahawks finished the year as the league's ninth best team by DVOA. Nobody plays to win the DVOA trophy, but I'll wrap up this section by contextualizing what could have been. The last time a team finished in the top 10 of the DVOA rankings while posting a losing record was in 2016, when the 7-9 Eagles finished 6th in DVOA. The following year, they were featured in this very column as the team that had, quote, the best stat nerd case for jumping into the postseason in 2017. They won the Super Bowl. I can't put the Seahawks on this list with Locke and Geno Smith as their starting quarterbacks. So there it is. Cool. We knew it all along. And just all the more frustrating. Why did it have to be now? Why did it have to be now? Well, let's get the hype on Tree Woolen. Uh, they could have still drafted Tree Woolen too. That is correct. They could not have drafted. Uh, I, I just, it, I, honestly, like, if you're not angry about this, you're kind of doing it wrong. I feel like. I think you'll get there eventually. Not being angry? I mean, no. I suppose we... No, I think the people oh, who are not currently angry... Oh, they will, will get, get to eventually. be angry? Yes. I mean, that's okay. the thing about this is like, it's not like a lot of fields in life where... R- right around like September 12th, like 5.30 p.m. maybe. I, maybe we'll give it to like have 7 a, p.m. I still have a gut feeling that somehow the Seahawks are going to beat Russell Wilson and it will be the high point of their season and everything will be downhill from there. They are going to lose that game like 38 to 6. We should do a specific bet about that game. They Russell Wilson has been training for months <laughs> to beat the Seahawks. I think that might actually be a bad thing. I don't. You're you're wrong. You've only seen Russell Wilson with Pete Carroll before. It's true. Ru- Russell they he has had he has had months to prepare for that game. He, he is going to, they will maybe pick him off early or something. And then a, slowly, slowly methodically, Russell Wilson, that is, that is a, your gut feelings are based upon watching the Seahawks with Russell Wilson for the last decade. Your gut is now wrong. No, my we gut always feelings, had a gut feeling about something. My gut feelings happening. Are, are based on whatever being the outcome that's going to give me the biggest personal comeuppance is my gut feeling. <laughs> So if you I pick a the team, the pl- beating Russell Wilson will give you that big of a personal comeuppance. Oh, you, do you do you don't understand what a victory lap all the Russell Wilson truthers and they know who <laughs> they are and how many of them there are are going to take if the Seahawks beat Russell Wilson in Week One? It's just not going to happen. They're gonna they are going to disappear into the woodworks. They might pop back up later on in the playoffs, like if the Broncos go ten and seven and miss the playoffs or something like that. They may <laughs> pop back up, but. They ain't popping up on no Monday Night Football Week One. Just got a sneaking suspicion. It's like they somehow beat the Broncos, and then they've they've gotten ever winning games for the rest of the year. I, I don't know if I'd go that far. I forget what the schedule is this season, but I feel like there's a bunch of easy games early in the season. Right? We talked about this when we were talking about when when the quarterback change might happen. Yeah, they they somehow beat the Broncos and then lose at home to Atlanta in week three. I assume that Atlanta is going to be good this year. No, Atlanta is going to be extremely bad. You, you think uh, they're going to be extremely bad? 
We, yeah. What is football? Football Outsiders Almanac came out. You've been reading that. What is the Pythagorean Pythagorean record for the Seahawks? Their like their projection is like seven wins, I think, somewhere in that that range. Okay, because you know, no one is typically that low. I'd I'd have to go double check that, but uh, did, it's somewhere in did, that was range. Was there anything else that you took from reading that Seahawks chapter? Um, nothing in there really surprised me, I guess I'd say. For all the reasons, like, it's all the things that we've been talking about. Bill had to do it to us. I I wanted him to do it. Had, it would have been very it. it would have been very disappointing otherwise. <laughs> would it have? Had to mention it, Bill. No, it's fine. It's okay. All right. The way the most important athlete in Seattle history, and we're just like, well, seen Abe Lucas block. <laughs> On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks.